You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 15, and when you found your place, before we begin, we'll bow and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Our gracious Father, we cannot even begin to study your word without first thanking you for giving it to us, even in our own tongue, our own language. The blessing that is to, to for you to provide for your church uh, such a clear revelation of yourself and your will for us. We thank you for the men and women who have done so much work and labored so diligently throughout church history and have sacrificed so much to give us uh, this revelation, your word, in our own language. So we thank you for that. We pray that our time spent in your word may open, be an opening of our eyes and our hearts to see your plan in redemptive history, uh, your handiwork in crafting all things and even your word to your own glory. And we are so grateful for the blessing that it is to have uh, your word before us. So we pray now that you would open our eyes to it, that you would open our hearts to obey it. And may you fill us with wonder, love, and praise for Jesus Christ, who is our great God and our Savior. And it is in his name that we ask these things. Amen. John chapter 15. We're going to read together the first 11 verses. And today is going to kind of be uh, an introduction to John 15. We're going to be in this passage at least for a bit. And you'll see what I mean by that here in just a moment. Let us read together these first 11 verses. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That's a familiar verse, a familiar passage to many of us, familiar verses. Um, This this is one of those passages where you will find uh, verses quoted from this and you'll see them on calendars and on pictures of vineyards and vines and and by grapes and all of that good stuff. It is familiar to Christians because there are a lot of precious truths here. Sometimes this passage is treated as if it were a a discourse unto itself. It's sometimes referred to as the vine and branches discourse. But as you will see in the coming weeks, it is not really something that we can isolate from the rest of the context because it flows quite logically from the end of chapter 14 and with the content of chapter 14 as far as its content goes. And it it kind of develops quite nicely into the rest of the discourse as well. So it is well situated and it's not something that we ought to view as something in, it just in, its own, in its own context as if it is to be isolated from everything else. It is tied to this entire discourse. We need to remember the discourse is chapters 14 through chapter 16 with a prayer in chapter 17. 
And so we need to kind of look at it, all of it in its context. Uh, this passage is, uh, is rich with some Old Testament metaphor and some Old Testament imagery, which we're going to get to in just a second. This is an extended metaphor, an extended metaphor. It's different than a parable. So don't think of the vine and branches passage as being a parable. It's not a parable. There's a difference between a parable and an extended metaphor. And here's the key difference. With a parable, a parable usually had one sort of central theme. And that one central theme or teaching of the parable was hidden by the details of the parable. So a parable was a story that was put alongside of a truth. And with a parable, the the truth contained in the parable was not always readily available on the surface of it. It wasn't something that you instantly caught or saw. Uh, in fact, in most instances, the and I say most because there were a couple of parables where Jesus taught that were the exception to this, but in most instances, the parables were intended to conceal truth from the unbelievers and to reveal them to believers. And the meaning of a parable was not obviously, uh, was not obvious immediately. In fact, oftentimes it had to be interpreted or kind of uh, taught and fleshed out a little bit before the meaning would kind of come to the surface. With an analogy, it is the opposite. With this analogy, the meaning is quite clear and it's right on the surface. We can go through, okay, pruning and vine and vine dresser and fruit. We got it. We got it immediately. It doesn't need a lot of explanation to kind of get the sense of it. So this is an extended metaphor. It's not a parable. Uh, there are features of this text that we're going to be looking at in the weeks ahead, and I'm just going to give you four of them. There are four features, or we might call them four players, four characters in this extended metaphor. I'm going to stop using extended metaphor and just use metaphor or vine and branches, but there are four of them here. There is the vine, which is obviously Jesus, verse 1. There is the vine dresser, who is the father. There are the fruitful branches off of the vine, and those are identified as the disciples. And then there are the fruitless branches off of the vine. And those in the text are not identified. We will identify them in the weeks to come, but they're not identified in the text. So you have the vine, the vine dresser, the fruitful branches, and the unfruitful branches. If you've ever studied John chapter 15, then you are aware, probably immediately, that there are a couple of interpretive issues that need to be addressed as we work our way through this metaphor. One of them is that some people take this passage and use it to teach that a Christian can be can lose their salvation. And they would point to, for instance, verse 6. Look down at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So that seems to suggest, almost a perfect example or description of a Christian who would lose their salvation. They're on the vine. They're cut off from the vine. They lay there. They dry up. They're gathered up and they are thrown into the fire and there they are burned in the fire. That seems to describe a Christian who is attached to the vine but then loses their salvation and so they are cast into hell and there they are burned up or burned for all of eternity. Others take this parable... Wow, did I just say parable? Others take this extended metaphor. Others take the metaphor and use it to teach that there are. it is possible for somebody who is a true Christian to remain completely and utterly fruitless in their Christian life. Look at verse 2, for instance. They would point to verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. That seems to describe a Christian who is without fruit. So some people point to verse 2 and say, see, there it is possible for somebody to be attached to the vine, they are in Christ, but for there to be no proof of it, no evidence, and no fruit in their Christian life. No good works, no evidence of repentance, no evidence of genuine faithfulness, no evidence of genuine salvation. They are the fruitless vines. Now, both of those issues we will deal with as we work our way through the text. 
And we're going to allow the meaning of the analogy and the wording of the text to, to be our guide. We're not going to get to both of those today, but we will get to them. And I just want you to be aware of them, that they are there. This analogy is not something, or this imagery of the vine and the branches is not something that Jesus sort of just pulled out of thin air and decided to make an object lesson out of. There is a rich Old Testament teaching, a rich Old Testament reality that was the backdrop of this. Uh, I've heard it taught that um, you get to the end of chapter 14 and we read like last week, get up, let us go from here. And that sort of indicated that they were leaving the upper room and on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I've heard people teach that, you know, they were the, Jesus and the disciples sort of tripping along the path on the Garden of Gethsemane and they stumbled by this vineyard. And here was a vineyard with the vines in there and maybe a wall with the vine branches on the outside. And Jesus thought, this is a perfect opportunity to give a good object lesson. So he gathered the disciples around. Come here, gentlemen, listen, I'm just going I am the vine and you are the branches. I don't think that that's what's happening at all. I think that Jesus actually has an entire Old Testament context in mind that you and I are not familiar with. And we're not familiar with it for really two reasons. Number one, because we do not live in an agrarian society like the disciples lived in, do we? And there's some people here that you trim your branches. You maybe even have vineyards and you got blueberry bushes and fruit trees and you trim your tomato plants. So you understand kind of some of the, some of the analogy here, but we don't, how many of you knew, know a professional vine dresser who was apprenticed under somebody else to learn how to take care of and tend vines? And that's their full-time job. That's all they do. That's all they know. They are apprenticed, and then they become sort of a journeyman vine dresser. How many of you know somebody like that? It's, it's rare, isn't it? You understand what it means to trip off, uh, trim off the stems of your tomato plants, but you probably don't know a professional vine dresser. These disciples would have known a lot of professional vine dressers because in that context, in an agrarian society, this analogy would have made a lot of sense to them. And it, we kind of understand it. We get it a little bit, but we don't appreciate it the way they do. A second reason that we don't appreciate it the way they do is because we don't hear it with Jewish ears. The Jewish disciples. We, we don't understand or appreciate some of the Old Testament background to the, the analogy itself of the vine and the branches. And so it doesn't strike us the way that it would have struck them. So what we want to do this morning is we want to dive into an Old Testament passage and sort of get some of that Old Testament background and flavor so that we might hear the analogy the way that the disciples would have heard the analogy. So, all of that said, turn back to Psalm 80. Psalm 80. This really was the introduction to the introduction. Psalm 80 is going to serve as our, as our background to John chapter 15. So I asked you to turn to John 15 so that I could kind of give you an introduction to Psalm 80. Psalm 80 is really going to be our introduction to John chapter 15. It's all very confusing and I'm not even sure that I'm following me right now. But we are all in Psalm 80. And this is going to serve to sort of lay the groundwork for us understanding how a Jew would have heard that phrase, I am the vine. All right? I could have asked you to turn to a number of different passages. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 19, Isaiah chapter 5, Hosea chapter 10, Exodus chapter 15. Any one of those passages would have, would have contained something similar to this. But I chose Psalm 80 for two reasons. Because, first of all, the, the idea of a vine and the analogy is, is very clear there. It is, is given, it is explained. But then also, there is a connection here. It is a messianic psalm. So the connection to Jesus and John chapter 15, I think, is very clear in this psalm. So, Psalm 80, and we're going to begin with the introduction to Psalm 80. That's why I said that was an introduction to the introduction. But take heart, the second introduction is much shorter than the first. Psalm 80, the introduction is those little words above verse 1. And always remember, that's part of the text. 
That's not the publisher's notes. That's not a study note. That's not something the translators put in there. That is part of the inspired text. Always remember that. Just because it doesn't have a verse number before it, and just because the print is smaller, doesn't mean it's not important. Sometimes it is very important to understanding the rest of the psalm. So the introduction to Psalm 80 is this. For the choir director, set to El Shoshanim Aduth, a psalm of Asaph. Everybody understand that? What is El Shoshanim Aduth? What is that? El Shoshanim, as some of you already know because you're reading a different translation. As you see, you chuckling and nodding your head. You know where I'm going to this. El Shoshanim, literally translated, would be the lilies. The lilies. Aduth is the word for covenant or testimony. So literally translated, it would probably read something like what we have in the ESV or the NIV. And so though I love my NASB and I love it more literally the way it is, sometimes more literally is not necessarily more helpful. So the ESV translates that introduction as this. To the choir master, according to lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. So that doesn't help. Well, if it's to the choir master and it is according to the lilies or according to the lilies, then likely the lilies was a tune or a meter or a rhyme or some sort of a song background. It was a psalm that was intended to be sung. So the NIV translates it as this. For the choir director or the director of music, to the tune of the lilies of the covenant of Asaph, a psalm. That's probably more likely what it was. It was a, a wording or words to a song that was intended to be sung, and it was set to the tune of the lilies of the covenant. That may not make sense to you. Say the song title doesn't make any sense. Well, listen, if you spoke to a Jew and said, does the song title Shine, Jesus Shine make any sense to you? It wouldn't have made any sense to them, right? So sometimes song titles don't necessarily make any sense to people, but it is a song title, probably a, a, a meteor or a rhyme or a style of music or even a song itself that they would take these words and plug them into it. And it was intended to be sung, so keep that in mind. It is a psalm of Asaph. Now, if the name Asaph sounds familiar to you, it is probably because not too long ago, we studied another psalm by Asaph. Do you remember what it was? It was Psalm 73, which had to do with the lament over the prosperity of the wicked. Do you remember that? I probably should say it was not that long ago because in terms of in terms of chapters in John, it was just right before chapter 13, but in terms of our time, it was back in May. So it wasn't that long ago, depending on how you're looking at it, but it was Psalm 73 was the lament over the prosperity of the wicked. Remember Psalmist Asaph said, my feet had almost slipped when I observed the prosperity of the wicked. And then I came into the sanctuary of God and I saw their true end. And he describes the end of the wicked. Even though their prosperity painted one picture, reality was something entirely different. That was Psalm 73. There are 12 Psalms attributed to Asaph. Psalm 73 through 83, that's 11 of them, and Psalm 50. What do we know about Asaph? Well, there were up to five different men in the Old Testament who were named Asaph. One of them, and likely the author of most, if not all, of these psalms, was the Asaph who lived during the time of King David, and he was appointed to lead worship in the temple as part of the worship of the nation. So he was a contemporary of King David. Some people would say that the Asaph described here in Psalm 80 had to have lived after David. So it was a different Asaph. And we, if you read through Chronicles, you'll find that there are Asaphs who lived after the time of David, uh, hundreds of years later, uh, who were also named Asaph. They were priests and probably were connected to some of the temple worship. Now, why would some suggest that this was a different Asaph? For this reason. Psalm 80 and the lament over the condition of the nation does not describe the nation during David's day. Do you understand that? In this, in this psalm, Asaph laments the condition of the nation as being broken down and deteriorated. 
religiously impure and disobedient and rebellious against God. And so the nation that Asaph describes here is a nation under God's judgment. It was a nation who had rebelled against Him and turned their back on God. And he is praying that God would turn the nation back to Him. And this nation that Asaph is describing has become the laughing stock of its neighbors and the plunder of all of its enemies. Well, that doesn't describe the nation during David's day, does it? It doesn't. The nation during David's day, you did not laugh at Israel in David's day. Because David was a man of war. And he was a serious man of war. And all of Israel's enemy nations cowered before David. It is difficult to to point to any point in the history of the nation of Israel when they were more religiously pure, more prosperous, and more militarily successful than at the time of David. The kingdom of David during that 40 years was the high water mark of the nation of Israel. They were greater than they had ever been prior, and they were greater than they would ever be afterwards. Save only a future reality. But they were, that was the high water mark of the nation of Israel during the days of David. But that's not what Asaph describes. So is this a different Asaph? It may be possible that what Asaph is doing here is he is speaking prophetically of a time yet future. And I submit that to you as a possibility because it's not all that far-fetched since this is a messianic psalm and Asaph is looking forward into the future to this coming deliverer. We're going to see that toward the end of the psalm. A coming deliverer. So he's anticipating the future reality of, of something that would happen in the future. It may be that he is anticipating the decline of the nation and he is offering here a prayer that would be sung in the event that the nation declined as he expected that they would be. And Asaph would be able to know that it would only be the sin of the nation that would cause the nation to deteriorate and decline. How would he know that? Because God had promised, if you obey me and keep my covenant, I will bless you. And so if the nation ever got to the point where God wasn't blessing it, it was not because of some uh, some uh, iniquity or inequity in God's promise. It was not because of some failure on God's behalf. It had to have been a failure on behalf of the nation of Israel. So Asaph is looking forward in the future. He sees the decline of the nation. He laments that and he prays a prayer that anticipates or looks forward to that future deliverance. The psalm divides up really nicely into three parts. And each part ends with the same refrain, the same prayer. You see it at the end of verse 3. O God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Look at verse 7. O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. And then verse 19. O Lord of hosts, restore us, cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. So three times that prayer is or twice the prayer is repeated, three times that prayer is given, that Lord cause your face to shine upon us. Each refrain of that ends one section of the psalm. They're obviously not all the same length, but it kind of divides that. Each section sort of culminates with that prayer. That prayer really captures the essence or the big idea of the psalm, which is this. Deliverance from distress can only come from the hand of a sovereign and gracious God. Deliverance from distress can only come from the hand of a sovereign and gracious God. That is the point of the entire psalm. And it divides into those three sections, and we're going to see the psalmist declare his dependence on God in verses 1 to 3, describe the distress of the nation in verses 4 to 7, and then uh, express his desire for deliverance in verses 8 all the way through 19. So, now we're halfway through our time, and we are just beginning to look at Psalm 80. It's okay, because there's nothing going on this afternoon that's worth doing. <laughs> Psalm 80, verse 1. His, where am I at? His declaration of, his declaration of dependence. See, I get my mind thinking about something else now and lamenting and almost crying and, 
Okay, let's look at how the psalmist describes God. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim shine forth. Notice how the psalmist, Asaph, describes God here. He is the shepherd of Israel. He is the shepherd of Israel. It describes his care, his provision, his blessing, his promises, his goodness, his kindness, his compassion, his gentleness, his watchful care. That is what the psalmist begins with, is that recollection of who God is. He is the shepherd of Israel. And by the way, you can see now why when Jesus stepped onto the scene and said, I am the good shepherd, that the Jews said, that's blasphemy. You're declaring yourself to be God, and they tried to stone him. You see why that is? Because the Jews, how did they view the shepherd of Israel? It was Yahweh. He's the shepherd of Israel. God is the shepherd of Israel. And when Jesus steps onto the scene and says, I am that good shepherd, they considered it blasphemy, and it would have been blasphemy if Jesus wasn't God in human flesh. So now, O shepherd of Israel... Lead Joseph like a flock. You who lead Joseph like a flock. You are enthroned above the cherubim shine forth. That's the picture of God being enthroned high and lifted up, mighty and exalted. It describes His authority and His power. It is a description of His position. He is unapproachable except that He is approachable through the mercy seat. And where was the mercy seat? The mercy seat was between the cherubim. And that, I think, is why Asaph describes God as one who is enthroned above the cherubim. The cherubim were the, the angelic beings who sat beside, uh, uh, carved out of wood, sat... Uh, over top of the mercy seat and the ark. And that is where God would have mercy upon His people. So the people could meet God there. They could expect and receive mercy from God there based upon an atonement, a sacrifice that had been made. And so the people could come to this unapproachable God, but only one way, through an atonement or a sacrifice that had been made. And they could receive mercy from this merciful, gracious, divine being who in Himself, apart from that mercy seat, was unapproachable because we are sinful and He is holy. So Psalm, uh, the psalmist is aware that God is unapproachable. He is enthroned high above the cherubim. He is holy, but we can come to Him through the mercy seat. And so that's what he's reminding God is a merciful God who meets with His per- people, who dispenses mercy to His people based upon a sacrifice that is made. Verse 2, Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your power. This God who is mighty and who is enthroned, Asaph is asking him, stir up your power. Power to do what? to deliver from distress. He is declaring his dependence upon this merciful God who can be approached for mercy and begged for mercy and asked for deliverance because he is a merciful God who delivers. And come save us. Verse 3, O God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. That language, that that prayer probably sounds familiar, not just because we read at the end of verse 3, the end of verse 7, the end of verse 19, but that phrase probably sounds familiar because it comes out of Numbers chapter 6. And it comes from what we call the Aaronic benediction. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to Aaron and tell him to say this to the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Numbers chapter 6 is that benediction that Aaron was to give to the nation of Israel. Aaron was to pronounce a blessing upon the nation, and God promised, if Aaron blesses the nation with this benediction, I will bless them. Numbers chapter 6, verse 23 says, speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke My name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. So Asaph is looking back to the nation of Israel in their wilderness wanderings after they came out of Egypt, and he is saying that benediction which was given back then for God's blessing upon the nation, he is taking that now and he is saying, I invoke that for the nation of Israel. Now, Lord, please bless them. Please bless them. And that benediction comes out of the book of Exodus and Israel's wandering in the wilderness. 
Now here's something interesting to note. You probably haven't noticed it because I'm just about to mention it. Verses 1 through 3 have a very Egyptian flavor to them. And that is intentional. You notice verse 1 that there is a synonym for Israel and it is Joseph. Did you notice that? You're reading through it? Bless Israel. Why didn't he say bless Jacob? Why didn't he say bless the 12 tribes? Why not even Judah, the most the most prominent of the tribes? And if this is the Asaph under David, uh, that would have been sort of the, the one that he would have really thought of, of the tribe of Judah there down in the in the southern part of the kingdom. Why didn't he liken the nation of Israel to any of those other tribes or patriarchs? Why Joseph? Why Joseph? Joseph was the renowned son who had gone down into Egypt to preserve a place for the nation who would go down there to be preserved and protected. Joseph became sort of a second father figure to them. And it might be even that in Egypt, the nation of Israel was known as the family of Joseph. Because all of Egypt would have known Joseph. But not necessarily Jacob and Jacob and, and uh, all the other tribes, but they would have known Joseph. So that was Joseph's family. And in Egypt, Joseph provided for and protected and, and, and blessed the entire nation, all of his family, when they came down to him. And you'll notice that not only is Joseph mentioned, but Ephraim and Manasseh are mentioned as well. Who are they? They were the two sons born to Joseph. Where? In Egypt. And not only that, but Benjamin is mentioned in those verses. Who was Benjamin? Benjamin was Joseph's only true full brother. And Asaph recalls that blessing that God gave to the nation when he brought them out of the bondage of Egypt, brought them out of there and brought them into the wilderness and blessed them there and provided for them and shepherded them. The first three verses have a very Egyptian flavor, and that is by intention and it is by design. So that is how the Lord, that is how Asaph describes God and our dependence upon him for mercy and grace. He reminds us of who God is in the first three verses. Now verse four, he gives to us a description of their distress. O Lord of hosts, How long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? That is a disconcerting thought, is it not? That God would be angry with us because of our sin. We can understand that. But that God would be angry with us because of our prayers? That's quite disconcerting. That's quite disconcerting. That God would be angry with us because of our prayers. So that can only describe the prayer of a nation or a people whose prayer was sin. It does not describe the prayer of a truly contrite man or woman, somebody who loves the Lord and is contrite and who is humble. It can only describe the prayer or the the prayer of a nation who is in rebellion and sin, so much so that they honored God with their lips, but not with their hearts, their hearts being far from him. And they would pray thinking that they were getting God's blessing because of their prayers or appealing to God, not wanting to turn from their sin, but still at the same time appealing and crying out to God. And that prayer angered God because it was not a contrite prayer. It was not a humble prayer. That truly expressed an understanding of their own sin and their own need. It was just sort of calling out for God for blessing and for deliverance, and that prayer was sinful. Look at verse six. Sorry, verse five. You have fed them with the bread of tears, and you have made them to drink tears in large measure. Now, if the nation should have obeyed God, and if obeying God they would have been blessed, the fact that they were under a curse and under judgment and experiencing this kind of sorrow described here is an evidence that they were not obeying God. They were disobedient and rebellious. And so what was the outcome of their disobedience and rebellion? Well, verse 5 says, you have fed them with the bread of tears. Fed them with the bread of tears. They sit down to a meal, and what do they get? Tear-soaked bread. Bitter, salty, and even the eating of that bread is a reminder of their sorrow. And what do they get to wash down their tear-soaked bread? Verse 5, more tears, more tears. The meal itself should be an occasion of rejoicing and delight and, and being thankful to God and enjoying the fruit of your labor. You should sit down at a meal and there should be peace and, 
and enjoyment of this recurring uh, incredible blessing of God that we get to sit down and enjoy the fruit of our labor and, and to enjoy a meal together. It should have been a time of rejoicing, but it was an unmitigated sorrow, an unmitigated sorrow, so that every bite just reminded them of their sorrow and, and the, the depressed and discouraged condition of the nation. Verse 6, You make us an object of contention to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. The nation has become a laughingstock. And not only that, but an object of contention. They had become something that everybody attacked. They had become plunder for the nations and their neighbors. Edom and Midian and Moab and all of those nations that surrounded Israel. Anytime something bad happened to Israel, they would rejoice. You can read the prophet Obadiah and you see the nation of Edom sitting back with their hands kind of behind them like this, doing nothing. When they had it in their power to stop foreign nations from invading Israel, they would do nothing. In fact, they actually sort of pitched in and helped out a little bit, helped out the foreign nations to invade Israel. That was the condition being described here. This is a nation that should have been on top of the world. They were a nation that was at the bottom of the barrel. And everybody trampled them. They were downtrodden. So he says in verse 7, O Lord of hosts, God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. What was necessary for this deliverance? That the nation would turn. That the nation would turn back to God. It wasn't a, it wasn't a defect in God's character or God's word or God's promises. The defect rested in the nation itself and their rebellion against God. And because of that, they needed the gracious, gracious face of God to shine down upon them and turn them back to God. That is a description of their distress. Now look at his desire for deliverance. And you're probably asking yourself, Jim, what does Psalm 80 have to do with Jesus and John 15 and vine and branches? Verse 8. You removed a vine from Egypt. Oh, here we are back to Egypt again. Interesting, right? This whole analogy of the vine that we're going to get here, beginning in verse 8, kind of reminds us of God taking them out of Egypt which might explain the sort of Egyptian flavor to the first three verses when he reflects upon God's deliverance of the nation from the, from the land of Egypt. Verse 8, you removed a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God in its bows. That is a brief history of the nation of Israel, probably all the way up until the time of David. Here was a, here was a young vine that existed in Egypt. It was planted in harsh soil. It wasn't watered by the Nile and all the enemies around it trampled it. They were in slavery and in bondage and harshly treated. And there was this young little fragile vine in the land of Egypt. And God took it out of Egypt. And He took it to the land of Canaan and preserved it for 40 years through those desert wanderings. And then He drove out all of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, seven nations and uprooted their idols and their idolatry, and drove out every all the cultural things that would threaten to undo this little vine. And he planted it in the, in the land of Canaan, removing the stones and fertilizing it and watering it and protecting it and providing for it and blessing it and encouraging its growth and causing it to grow. And this little vine, this little, little tiny nation plucked out of the land of Egypt, so small among all the other nations, became one of the greatest military powers and one of the greatest financial powers that the world had ever seen up to that point. So much so that verse 10 describes this mountain being covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its bows. It is quite a vine that can produce vines and, and, and uh, leaves that would even come to the top of cedar trees and shade the mountains around it. This is an, an, an enormous vine. Verse 11, it was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. It was spreading and its influence was growing great. You remember in the time of Solomon that even the queen of Sheba came to see the wisdom of Solomon? and brought him gifts. The influence of the nation was great. This is a brief history in terms of a vine, an analogy of a vine of the entire nation of Israel. But something happened. Verse 12. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? 
the hedges that should have been around this vine and around this vineyard to protect it from all of its neighbors and to protect it from marauding bands and other nations coming in and plundering it and abusing it and taking it. God had removed that. God had removed his sovereign protection. And so now they were in a condition described in verse 13, a boar from the forest eats it away and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. It is just, it is a sitting duck. It is open for plunder. People can come and take whatever they want. They stripped the nation. They removed its riches. This nation had broken down to the point where the wall was broken down, and even in the times of Nehemiah. This was a nation that had disobeyed God and so forfeited all the blessings of provision and prosperity and protection that God had given to it. Israel was that vine. Israel was the vine of God, planted and cared for and nourished. And this analogy of Israel being that vine whom God judged for their sin was a common theme in the Old Testament. And I'm going to give you a few examples of it. Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah says this, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not, that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed. But briars and thorns will come up. It will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Or I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold a cry of distress. End quote. You see the analogy there? God had this little vine. And he did everything for it. It had every advantage you can imagine. And he expected it to produce good fruit. He even prepared wine vats for it. That's the analogy. But what did it produce? Worthless grapes, worthless grapes, useless fruit, or no fruit at all. That was the nation of Israel. Every blessing that God gave to it, every advantage that he poured out upon it, and he expected good fruit, and what did he get? Worthless grapes. Nothing. They didn't produce fruit of obedience. Instead, they produced the fruit of idolatry and rebellion and witchcraft, and they turned from the Lord. So we read in Jeremiah 2, verse 21, Yet I planted you a choice vine, a complete faithful seed, how then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Hosea chapter 10, verse 1, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. That's from Hosea. Remember the book about Israel's unfaithfulness, like Hosea's wife? Hosea, Israel had been unfaithful, and they were like a luxuriant vine, prosperous, But the more they prospered, the more they produced idolatry, the more they produced altars, and the more they spent their luxurious living on foreign gods and idols and the worship of those foreign idols. And so that's what happened to the nation of Israel. They were that vine, and now they have been broken down, and because they were under judgment, God had removed those barriers, and now they were the plunder of the nations. So Psalmist Asaph prays for deliverance. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see... And take care of this vine. Who's the vine again? Israel's that vine. The luxuriant vine. The, 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 the blessed vine. The little vine that God took out of Egypt. Verse 15. Even the shoot which your right hand has planted. The right hand is the hand of God's power and His grace and His authority and His majesty. 
Verse 15, even the shoot which your right hand has planted and on the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. Now hold on a second. Who's that son? Who is the son? If you're reading an older translation, it reads branch. The branch whom you have strengthened for yourself. Why the difference in translation? Why do the older translations translate a branch in keeping with sort of the analogy? And why do some translations, the newer ones, translate it son? It is real simple because the word that is translated there can be translated either as branch or as son. And sometimes in the Old Testament, the idea of a branch was used to communicate the idea of somebody's son. Like in Jeremiah 33, verse 15, where prophetically speaking of Christ, Jeremiah says, In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. The righteous branch of David. They say, could this reference to the son, a branch here in verse 15, be referring to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 16. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. We're back now to the nation of Israel and their current distress. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Now, it's interesting that the, the countenance that the psalmist wants God to turn to them is a countenance of favor. But here, the countenance is a rebuke. So they're still seeing the face of God in verse 15. But the face is not a gracious face shining on them to give them gracious favor or turning them from their sin. This countenance of God is the rebuke of God. And what the psalmist is asking for is that that countenance would change that the face of God toward that nation would change. Verse 17, Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Wow. Asaph wants deliverance. By whom would that deliverance come? The man whom you have strengthened for yourself, the man of your right hand, the son of man who is strong for you, Bring deliverance by that one. Now put all of that in sort of together here. What is Asaph desiring? He is desiring deliverance because the vine, Israel, had failed. Israel had failed, and he is, he is looking forward to a branch that would come off of Israel, who would be the son whom God had strengthened for his purposes, the son of man, the man of his right hand, who would bring this deliverance to the nation of Israel. Can you see now why the Jews regarded Psalm 80 as a messianic psalm? What is, what is Asaph looking forward to? Deliverance through this Messiah for the nation because the vine had failed. Now you can hear what the Jewish disciples heard in the garden in chapter 15. I am the true vine. You and I hear that. We think of John 15. The disciples heard that. And what would they think of? Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80. You're the true vine? Israel is God's vine. But Israel has failed to bring forth the fruit that God expected of it. And because of that failure, God has broken it down and He is judging that vine. And Jesus says, I am that true vine. He is the Son of God's right hand. The one whom Asaph was anticipating would deliver the nation. But the nation was under judgment. And Jesus already told them that. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. He had already by this time lamented and cried over Jerusalem and wept over them and prophesied their coming judgment. He had told the nation because they had rejected their Messiah that they would be judged. Israel was an Old Testament vine who failed the Lord. And we see throughout the Old Testament that where Israel as a nation fails, the Messiah succeeds. Her Messiah succeeds. Let me give you some examples. Israel was to be a priesthood. Did they succeed or fail? How did they do? They failed. The religion was corrupted. The priests were corrupt. The temple was defiled became a laughingstock. They failed. But Jesus 
is greater than Melchizedek. He is greater than Aaron, greater than Moses, greater than the priesthood, greater than the priest, greater than all the Old Testament sacrifices. He's greater than all of that. Where Israel failed in the priesthood, Jesus Christ succeeds and perfectly saves all those for whom he makes atonement. What a wonderful picture. Israel is to be a light to the nations. How do they do? Pass or fail? One word, Jonah. That was the nation of Israel. They were supposed to take the message of Yahweh to the nations and bring the nations to their God. They were to put on display all the glorious attributes of that God so that the nations would see it and behold it and come. And a few people did here and there. You got, you got the Ninevites converting under Jonah and a few examples like Rahab of people coming into the nation of Israel, but it, it, wasn't, in, it wasn't like it was intended to be. So how did, how did Israel do as a light to the nations? They failed. But guess who the light of the world is? Jesus. He is the true light which coming into the world gives light to all men. Not just Jews, but to all men. He is the light of the world, and those who believe in Him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Where Israel failed to bring light to the world, the Messiah has succeeded. Israel was supposed to be the servant of God, pass or fail. They failed. But Isaiah says that he would raise up, God would raise up a servant who would do all of his will and fulfill all of his will and do everything that God wanted him to do. So where Israel failed, their Messiah succeeded. Israel was a vine. It was supposed to produce fruit. How did they do, pass or fail? But guess what? Jesus is the true vine who always does the will of the Father, who produces always the fruit of obedience. And where Israel failed to produce fruit worthy of the vine dresser, Jesus would produce that fruit in his people, a fruit worthy of the vine dresser, and succeed where Israel had failed. That introduces us to John 15. He's the true vine. He's the true vine. There are all kinds of analogies and similarities between Jesus as the true vine and Israel as the vine of the Old Testament. Israel, Israel as the vine failed. Jesus as the vine succeeds. Israel as a vine failed and faced judgment for her sin, but Jesus as the true vine was not judged for his sin. He was judged for the sin of his people. He bore the wrath of his people. Israel as a vine went down into Egypt to be protected and preserved. Do you remember that? Jesus as the true vine also went down into Egypt. When? When Herod the Great tried to kill all of the babies in and around Bethlehem, Jesus and Mary and Joseph went down into Egypt. And Matthew quotes Hosea saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. That was prophesied. So just as Israel the vine was taken out of Egypt, so Jesus as the true vine also came out of the nation of Israel, out of Egypt after he was protected and provided for. And Israel, because of their sin, would need deliverance. And they would look forward to one who is the true vine who would give deliverance. That's what Psalm 80 is all about. We come to the point where we are aware of our sin, we know of our sin, we are in distress, but the deliverance of God from our distress can only come from the hand of a gracious and sovereign God. And Israel's the vine failed. And they were judged. They were judged, and God instead raised up a branch off of Israel who was the true vine who succeeded in doing everything that Israel failed to do. Now with that Old Testament background, you can kind of get into the mindset of the disciples. So Asaph prays in verse 18, then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. He's looking forward to God sending this deliverer who is the true vine. O Lord of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Deliverance from distress can only come from the hand of a gracious and sovereign God. And the nation of Israel failed as God's vine. And so God raised up a branch, the son of his right hand, the son of man whom he strengthened for his purpose. And that son of man brings deliverance as the true vine brings deliverance for the failed vine and all who will trust in Him. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious God, we thank You as we see in Your Word so many marvelous things in redemptive history. We see Your hand in all of this. 
We are stunned at all of the the precious truths that lie on the surface of your word. And nothing that we read in the New Testament comes out of just out of ether, out of thin air. It is all something that is revealed ahead of time in the Old Testament. We thank you for this reminder that in all of your purposes, you are gracious and sovereign and good. And we thank you that you purposed even and intended that nation Israel would fail. You, You allowed that to happen so that you might bring about a redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ and the grafting in of Gentiles and the bringing us in and, and, and making us part of that true vine. We thank you that we are able to be fruitful branches by your grace. And we thank you for this reminder from the text of the Old Testament even of how gracious you are and how good you are and how you shepherd and lead and guide and provide for your people. We thank you as a humbled and grateful people who, whose desire and love it is to adore you and to give you the praise of which you are due, which we do this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.